wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Thanks for listening. You can follow Bleeding Daylight and connect to our social media channels by following the links at bleedingdaylight.net. And if any episodes of Bleeding Daylight encourage you, please encourage others by sharing them and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. After reaching rock bottom, today's guest knew something had to change. Today, we'll hear the story of how change happened for him and how he's helping others find healthy life change. It's everywhere we look. Sexualised images that once would have been hidden from view are now readily available online, whether you want to see them or not. More than that, they're on our televisions, on billboards, in advertising, in our shopping malls and so many other places that we've become desensitised to how much something that was once private is being pushed into the public sphere. Damon Covert is someone who allowed society's new take on sex and sexuality to shape who he was. It almost destroyed him. He's my guest on Bleeding Daylight today, and together we'll explore a very different kind of addiction. Damon, welcome to Bleeding Daylight. Thank you, Rodney. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. You describe yourself as a grateful recovering addict, and that immediately makes us think of drink or drugs, but your addiction was very different. Tell me what it was that gripped you. I was introduced to um, pornography when I was only about eight or nine years old. Now, this is BC. This is before computers, before cell phones, at least before personal computers. You know, I I grew up or rather got older in the 80s. um, And so, you know, if you wanted pornography, you had to go out and find it. I wasn't even actively looking. I was just with some friends. And again, it was after a Cub Scout meeting of all things, which was, which was kind of crazy because, you know, in, in scouting, they teach about, you know, morality and being gentlemanly and so forth. And there was nothing gentlemanly about what I was introduced to in that attic that night. You know, I didn't even fully understand what I was looking at uh, as, a, as a child of only eight or nine. These magazines were actually fairly explicit. They were not, you know, this wasn't just nudity. There, there was a bit more graphic nature to it. And I didn't have an immediate craving for more of that. That would that would come later in my adolescence. And my exposure to pornography actually was was kind of it wasn't terribly overwhelming until I got into uh, my my adolescence, my teen years, when you know friends were were exploring this sort of thing, and it developed slowly at first. But the introduction was very early at an impressionable age. We hear more and more, especially in this digital age that the time that young people are introduced to pornography or at least first see pornography is getting younger and younger. Mm -hmm. But it seems that it was pretty much the case back then and maybe not as widespread. But for you as an eight or nine-year-old, you're starting to see things that you really don't understand. So what was it that brought you back to it? Or or was it something that, well, that's what I've seen and, and I'll move away from it? And you were drawn back in your adolescence. I think it was just uh, like any addiction. Um, and I think this is why it's so easily for people to get hooked on anything. It could be shopping, gambling. It could be video games. I, I think it was just a way for me to medicate my emotional pain. You know, I really didn't understand what I was looking at, but it did It did create a certain reaction in my brain. And, and actually, we've come to understand since that the science behind pornography is virtually identical 
in terms of what it does in your brain to drug addiction. I've seen brain scans of people who have you know, just taken heroin and compare those with a brain scan of someone who's viewing pornography. The same areas, the same pleasure centers of your brain are lit up when you're when those two activities are going on. So it is it is a biochemical thing, but you know, again, it's it's just interesting that you don't have to actually physically take a drug to get that same high in your brain. I was not necessarily the most popular kid in school. I, I wanted to be well liked. I wanted to be thought of as as a, a fun person to be around. I typically didn't feel like I fit in very well. And and we're also hearing that a lot these days with younger people, you know, where they, they don't feel like they fit in. So uh, they start to uh, assume certain things about their their identity and so forth. And it was just a way to medicate my emotional pain. So that emotional pain, what was going on for you at the time? Was it just those struggles that we all face through adolescence and wanting to be liked by people as we go through those high school years? Or was there more to it at that stage? I think there was much more to it. And I, I do think that a lot of addiction is rooted in early trauma. I think it had to do mostly with my family of origin. I had uh, uh, a, a loving family. I grew up in a nominally Christian home. I, we really didn't go to church a lot, maybe on Easter. Uh, you know, My mom sent my brother and myself to vacation Bible school to get us out of the house for a couple weeks during the summer. And uh, you know that really was it. I didn't have a, a great foundation spiritually. But my home life was a little tense. I learned to walk on eggshells because I never really could fully predict what side of the bed my mom might wake up on. And uh, so I learned to uh, kind of toe the line. I knew my my parents loved me, but um, I couldn't always feel like I deserved that love. And that sort of shaped my my view of God, too, growing up. I wanted to have a little more control over my life. Um, didn't feel like I could have that openly, so I think it was channeled into uh, addictive behavior, and, and I think we see this with with other addictions as well. But it certainly was was just a way of exercising a, a degree of control, or at least the feeling that I was in some kind of control over some aspect of my life. And so I think it was more to do with the the early trauma of dealing with uh, parental anger and so forth. You know, I, I was never physically abused. I have no recollection of being sexually abused, although many people that are addicted to pornography and, and uh, struggle with sexual addiction are, in fact, emotionally, physically, and or sexually abused. Interestingly enough, the emotional abuse is is a higher incidence. It's over 90% of people that struggle with sexual addiction are dealing with some sort of emotional abuse uh, versus 70 or 80% of, of physical or sexual abuse. You're talking there about having some kind of control in your life, being able to control something because everything else seemed out of control. I'm interested in the whole idea of addiction in this sexual addiction that you found yourself in, along with addiction to drugs or alcohol, that they seem to start as being a way of someone having some kind of control. But how quickly did that start to control you? How quickly did the tables turn for you? Mm, yeah, that's a great question, Rodney. And and I, I think it probably happened a lot earlier than I realized. And I think that's how it that is in the addict mind is that we, we tend to think that it's all under control. It's not a problem until it's a problem. It's not a problem until somebody finds out or you get caught. So I, I think it, it very quickly, especially uh, in my adolescence, it very quickly escalated a daily need 
to partake of this this addiction. Again, it wasn't like you could just pick up your phone these days. I, I actually feel sorry for a lot of the, the you know a lot of people that, that struggle with this because it is so easy to access this material these days. Uh, you don't even need to go buy anything. You you probably already have the phone and you probably already have an internet connection and, and uh, so it's just a matter of of grabbing that piece of technology and beaming this stuff into your brain. But even if I wasn't able to seek out and physically find pornography to look at, again, this is the early 80s, there were no personal computers hooked up to an internet. My friend had a Commodore 64, and that was, you know, the hot computer at that time. There was also the the physical gratification that goes along with. That was something that quickly took over my life. We're told it's kind of a normal thing for, for adolescents to do. I prefer the word common. I think we use the word normal far too often. I think that, uh, you know, it quickly spiraled for me um, where I was, you know, I was acting out in some way, shape or form almost every day and unable to go even, even a, a couple of days uh, without using my drug of choice in some way, shape or form. You're mentioning that it's very common. Society would like to tell us that this means that it's normal. And of course, it becomes more and more normalized as we go on. And I think probably around the 80s and especially into the 90s and and after that, it became even more normal where even in our television shows, if there wasn't something pornographic in there, there was mention of it. There was a lot of mention in just some fairly standard comedies on TV where there constantly talking about use of pornography as if it's a very normal thing. Do you think that this has been one of those things that has supposedly normalized it in our society and stopped people from getting help when they need it? Absolutely. It's sort of a chicken versus the egg conundrum. Which came first? Is it art imitating life or is it life imitating art? Or are we now just sort of stuck in this cycle of life imitating art, imitating life, imitating art. And and I think that it definitely has been normalized and we've seen that across the board. And unfortunately, it's, it's a slow progression as well. We're seeing more and more uh, deviation from what used to be normal. Normal no longer means much anymore because we, we have overused that word. There's... Um, a commonality in terms of our internal struggles and the way we deal with things as, as human beings. In the United States, we have uh, an estimate of about 30 million Americans who are struggling with some form of sexual addiction. Uh, you know, that's six to eight percent of our population. And I honestly think the number is a lot higher because, you know, it's a very touchy subject. Nobody wants to really admit that they have this sort of problem. But I do think that absolutely the, the media have created this this sort of standard that it's perfectly normal to to view pornography and act out on a on a regular basis you know alone or with others and that's just how it is somehow celibacy is fatal you know i've never met anyone who died of celibacy and you won't because you know when i was in college I was taught in psychology class that, you know, sex was a basic human need. You know, you had food, water, shelter, and sex. And that's just not true. It's just not true. We have a a sexual element to our personalities. God created us as sexual beings. But there is a stewardship that should go along with that. I never really took seriously. I mean, I did initially because I wanted to do the right thing. I wanted to be pure. 
I was anything but, but, you know, I, since I technically had not lost my virginity yet, I still thought of myself as, as a pure uh, person. And honestly, I was weird even back then for that. You know, this, I didn't grow up in the, in the, the new Victorian uh, 1950s in America where you didn't say the word pregnant on television and people slept in separate beds on TV. You know, I, I grew up watching uh, I Love Lucy and Dick Van Dyke and all the reruns from, you know, the 50s and so forth where you didn't see, you know, husband and wife even sleeping in the same bed. Now, you know, somebody goes out to a bar and they meet somebody on a TV show and the next scene they're in bed together. So it is it is definitely a, a problem where this is normalized for our kids. This is normalized for uh, young adults who are trying to discover, um, you know, what it means to be alive here in these, these modern times. And you're talking about the tricks that we play in our own minds there about thinking, well, I haven't actually slept with anyone, so therefore I'm still pure. Uh, I'm still sexually abstaining. And yet we see that there are these tricks that we, we play. And there, of course, was the famous one some years back where one of your presidents uh, said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman because he decided what was going to be under that heading and what wasn't. Yeah, I, I had a feeling you were headed there, Rodney, and I was I was going right there too. Uh, I do I do have to blame our one of our former presidents, but it's not just him. You know, it's it's been like that. We've been trying to redefine things for so long. You know, if we don't like the way a word is used, we'll just redefine what it means, and we're seeing that more and more and more, and and it's just to suit a certain narrative so that we can feel like, you know, everything's okay. It's a control thing. I think we have people that are, they're basically, we're addicted to self. We want to feel better than we feel. Uh, if we don't feel accepted, if we don't feel loved, we're going to redefine what love means. And actually, I mean, that's the, the other point I'd like to make is that too often, I mean, we, we are trying to equate love and sex. Sex is sex and love is love. There's a certain movement where, you know, you'll see the, the words love is love and that that's true, but sex is sex. You know, sex does not equal love. Love is greater than sex. Going back to the books we read, the shows we watch, the music, you know, the words love and sex are used interchangeably. And I think it's just because we have been for so long, we've been redefining what words mean. We're, we're redefining things where they now have no meaning, and we're seeing that go uh, in the United States. We're, we're seeing that go to an extreme. We're just deciding that, that gender really isn't even a thing, and I, I know that's a very touchy topic, but you know we've, we've gone and, and taken some steps here in the United States, and it still hasn't played out completely, but we, we are degendering our, our legislation. Um, and I do think, too, in a lot of ways, these gender issues, these are, these are addictive thought patterns. Um, you know, this is a way of exercising control. Here's how I want to be seen. Here's how I want to be, uh, you know, addressed. Here's how I want to physically dress. Um, here's what I want my body to look like. And we just make these changes, whether it's, you know, uh, some sort of uh, implants to make us look more attractive, uh, or if it's, if it's just more radical modification of our bodies. Uh, there's, there's, there's a whole rabbit trail of things that uh, can come out of this this idea that uh, you know our identity our sexual identity is paramount in our lives i'm interested that you bring up the the whole point of the the love is love campaign that we've seen which is designed to say well anything goes because they use love as as an attraction rather than defining it as that self-giving love that that we might understand it to be so 
when I see love is love, I, I have to agree. But first, you've got to determine what do the terms mean that you're actually talking about. The Greeks actually have, as you probably know, there are at least six or seven different words for love. It's it's um, sort of like the uh, American Eskimo or Aleutian people's you know uh, words for snow. They have all of these different types of snow, and they have a special word for each one. And you know, in in the Greek language, um, you know, people are maybe familiar with the term agape love. Uh, which is sort of that all-encompassing, accepting, altruistic love. But then, you know, you have uh, philia, which is a love of friendship. And again, there there's an interesting word, and I'm going to touch on a really touchy topic here, but when we talk about pedophilia, for example, and, and when you tell somebody you have a sexual addiction, I think their mind, in a lot of cases, wants to go to the worst possible place. They want to assume that you're some sort of pedophile, that you, you know, you have a problem with uh, sexual attraction to children. Uh, I, I praise God that my situation didn't get to that point, but it is a progression. So it is something to be very, very careful about because, again, the the mind wants something different all the time, and and the media will feed you whatever filth you want. They will provide that for you ad nauseum. I don't like the word pedophilia. Only because I don't think that really fits the definition. A pedophile is a liker of children. I, I think that we should, if we're going to create a word for that that type of aberrant behavior or attitude, it should be a little more accurate. This is we're talking about erotic love or physical love. Um, you know the Greek word eros. You know, again, it's a way of softening that word. Well, I just like kids. You know, when when Penn State uh, University in in my home state of Pennsylvania a number of years ago, there was the Jerry Sandusky uh, scandal. And Jerry Sandusky, for example, he just said, well, you know, I, I just I like kids. I love kids. But yeah, not in the right way, Jerry. Um, I'm sorry. You know, that there's there's no point at which a child should be subjected to the sexual advances of an adult. And I think most people would agree with that, but we are gradually heading toward, as you said, anything goes. The logic could be, well, that's just my sexual expression. and You don't have the right to tell me that that's not okay. I think right now, the majority of people would say, absolutely not. This is totally off limits and, and never should be okay. But I think we are going to see a Fabian progression start to blur those lines, and we do see that. Uh, where I'm, where I'm broadcasting from right now in the state of Maryland, uh, we have uh, a law that says if it is cultural, that a a minor can be married to a much older adult uh, with parental consent. So, if it is cultural, you know, out of a specific religious belief. And we have a 14-year-old girl whose parents are okay with this 45-year-old man uh, being her husband. That's legal. And again, as you said, it's, it, we're headed toward a situation where anything goes, where there's this, this concept of pansexuality. You know, anybody, anything, anytime, um, as so long as I can feel better about me. And that's really what addiction is all about. We were talking about the fact that you became hooked in your adolescence, but where did it go from there? Where did it become such a problem for you? You know, when you're young and you're single and you're unattached and you think, well, this is no big deal. You know, first of all, sounds like all my friends are doing the same sorts of things. Um, It's not a problem. 
but it becomes a problem when you're, especially when you're impacting another person directly. Now, I, I think there's there's a concept in a lot of people's minds that pornography is a victimless crime. It's not um, because you know we we have we can demonstrate the direct connection between human trafficking and pornography uh, and the the so-called sex trades and pornography. Where it it became a problem for me was relationally. One of the one of the things about a sexual addict is typically when they will will find someone who's willing to to be with them and, and kind of satisfy their physical needs or or desires. A lot of times, immediately after that, there's a rejection uh, because of the shame that the addict feels. They will often push that person away, and this this was my problem too. I was keeping people at arm's length. I was desperate and hungry for intimacy and the physical intimacy did not provide what I wanted. I was not, I did not feel necessarily accepted simply because I was with someone physically. And so I kept trying to go back to that. And and a lot of times that, you know, there is a cycle where you'll go to someone, you know, is, is going to say yes to whatever it is you want to do. But immediately after, there's almost always a rejection. Well, look at the time I've got to go. And, um, you know, we see that played out in the media, too, that there is there is some truth to it. I mean, that's the, the really attractive thing about any lie is a grain of truth that rings, um, you know, with, with other people and resonates with them and say, oh, yeah, I've experienced that. Where it really hit home for me, I wish I could say that this was not part of my story, out of my... Uh, addiction and and out of a, a lack of caution uh, one of the young ladies that I got involved with got pregnant you know we were panicked we were scared and we were young it was a terrible time for either one of us to try to start a family and uh, because we didn't know what else to do we had an abortion I am every bit as responsible as the young lady involved I still deal with the feelings about that I mean I think about that almost every day of my life and it's easily by far the worst thing I ever did. And again, here, here's society saying this really isn't a big deal. You know, we don't even call it a baby anymore. We're not, we're not, you know, terminating a baby. It's a pregnancy. We're just terminating the pregnancy, the condition of being pregnant. That was my first real rock bottom moment uh, where I thought, oh my goodness, you know, this disease that I have has driven me to the point where I have, I have taken someone's life. In terms of the other ways it affected me, I carried it into my marriage. I, you know, I eventually met a wonderful woman, got married, and you know, we were pretty happy at first, or so I thought. I still had my my secret sin. You know, ever since I bought a computer and was hooked up to the internet, I could access that uh, anytime I had a little privacy, and that has you know, it was going on for a long time. And um, again, it wasn't a problem until it was a problem. That kept fueling my my desire for that intimacy that I was searching for, which again was never going to be satisfied by pornography or by physically acting out. You know, so this was going on the entire time I was I was married. I would be okay for a couple of days maybe or I would try to quit and maybe I'd make it a couple of weeks sort of white knuckling my way through recovery. And I wasn't involved in a recovery program at the time. So I was just doing it on my own, which by the way, never works. But eventually 
because of the other stresses and strains on my marriage, I had uh, emotional affairs, a couple of these in a, a short period of time. And then my wife found out. She asked the right questions and I was honest with her and things hit the fan. And I really felt like, you know, my marriage was over, my family was over. And, you know, this was, this was the, the next rock bottom for me. But by the grace of God, my wife took me back and we've worked things out. And here we are, you know, 15 plus years on the far side of this stuff. Our marriage is not perfect, but uh, it's, it's good. And we work on it. You know, we, we actually have true intimacy. I can talk to my wife about some of my issues and, and I have accountability and so forth. I'm interested, first of all, about that term of an emotional affair, because this comes back to the whole idea that we can justify certain things. Hey, look, I, I didn't go very far with it. It was just a sort of a, a connection. For those that, that perhaps don't understand what we're talking about, what would you classify as an emotional affair? I would say it's any relationship that you wouldn't want your spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend to know about. We have these relationships, whether it's someone at work or someone we know socially uh, or an online relationship. So I, I think anything that you would want to keep a secret. I mean, truth is our secrets keep us. I was as nervous as a cat in a room full of rocking chairs, as they say. I just always worried that one of those rocking chairs was going to come down on my tail. It's any kind of relationship that you would not want your significant other to know about. I term these emotional affairs because they did stop short of sex, but there was a physical element. You know, there was a physical affection element to these relationships, but just because they didn't actually involve intercourse, that doesn't make it right. We have to put up boundaries in our lives to be safe you know, because uh, it's it's very easy to get into a conversation and feel a, an emotional connection with someone. And again, if you are of an addict mindset, you can find a little touchstone with just about anybody. But it's just very dangerous uh, and it, it doesn't end well, trust me. So you've come to your own rock bottom. What was it that turned things around for you? How did you start to claw your way back to where you should have been? I can't take a lot of credit for that. I, I think that in a lot of times, a lot of situations like this, we have to be broken. Very, very few people will wake up and just change because, okay, you know, I realize I'm in a bad way. For me, let me just speak from my experience. I had to have those wake up calls. You know, that was, I had to suffer the consequences. And again, this is something we like. We want to have our, you know, our cake and eat it too. We don't want to have the consequence of our actions. And so I, I had to feel that sting and I had to realize that, you know, the, the pain of continuing in my current way of thinking, my current mode of operation is greater than the pain of dealing with my stuff. And so after the disclosure of, of these emotional affairs and the fallout from all of that, there was a long road. The spiritual connection really was, was what started that for me. I began to realize that I could not help myself. I needed a power greater than myself. And until that point, the God of my understanding was me. Now, again, I grew up in a, in a nominally Christian home. I had heard the name of Jesus. I, I knew, you know, that God loved me, but I didn't really comprehend that. I didn't really get that until I realized I have nowhere else to go and God will still 
take me back. I was the prodigal son. You know, I had been given all these great things and I squandered them. And yet my father not only took me back, but ran out to meet me. That was the point for me where it turned around. I realized that I was isolated and chose isolation as a way of protecting myself and my lifestyle. But I got plugged into a church. Um, and in my case, I'm a musician, so plugging into our, our worship team was was a logical step. And I, I served in any capacity. I told the worship leader, I said, "I'll do whatever you whatever you need." You know, I ran the soundboard. I wasn't on the platform for a while. I just did whatever they needed. And that helped me. And I, I met some real friends. I met people that, that I could actually talk to. And I remember very clearly uh, a number of years later, you know, finally opening up to uh, one of my buddies on the worship team and, and telling him I had a long way to go in terms of my sexual purity. I remember that night with crystal clarity. And that was the beginning for me. And then our church started a Celebrate Recovery ministry. Um, I started attending that because I knew they needed a worship leader for their their program, and I thought I'd go help those people, only to find out I was those people, and I needed to be there for me. For the last several years, I've been I've been involved in some capacity with Celebrate Recovery, and then I, I heard about another fellowship that was geared towards sexual addiction. I started attending that as another layer of accountability and, um, you know, I, I found a sponsor and, and people that understood my specific issues. Although I have found, and what I love about CR is that it is basically everything, you know, I mean, you can, you have shopaholics there, you have gambling addicts, you have people that struggle with drugs and alcohol, you have people that struggle with codependency and, and sexual issues. It's across the board. We can get hooked on anything to try to medicate that emotional pain. Before we talk about the, this ministry that you've begun, and I want to find out about that and, and how we can hook people into that, but I want to go back to some of the things that you were saying before. You were talking about pornography and those that it affects, and it's not just those who are consuming pornography, but those who are involved in it in the first place. And I heard a statistic somewhere that it's around 70 to 80% of the people that we see in those images have been forced there, that have been trafficked there in some way. And and I'd suggest that the number would probably be even higher. I'm sure it is, Rodney. And you cannot prove consensuality, even if there's some affidavit on the website that says everybody's 18 and is here of their own free will. There's just no way of knowing that for sure. I don't want to be part of that problem. I, I got better for myself and you have to want to get better for yourself. You have to be, I guess, more miserable uh, you know, again, realizing that that point of your own pain is is greater to continue in what you're doing than to make a change and, and start owning up to your stuff. But, um, you know, socially and culturally, there there is a greater mandate to not be part of the problem. I was definitely part of the problem. And I think you're right. I think that the, the numbers are probably much higher. I actually had the privilege and blessing of hearing a woman speak. Her name is Harmony Grillo. She was pimped out as a dancer by one of her former boyfriends, but she got out of that, got away from this guy and went to school. Now she's got a master's degree. I think she might have two master's degrees and she actually has her own ministry and her own organization that helps women get out of the sex trades. Over 80% of people that are working in the adult industry, women in particular, say they would rather not be. Some of them feel like they don't have any financial choice. This is just, you know, the only only marketable skill they think they have. 
They also get into these situations where it's it's a promise of some some degree of fame and notoriety. I, I actually sat on a plane with a young lady. Um, I was visiting my brother in Atlanta. God has a sense of humor. He puts the sex addict next to the aspiring Playboy model. This young lady was probably 20, college age. I just felt like God was saying, you know, you should talk to this young lady, but it was not in a creepy way. It was just, hey, let's. there's something going on here. Let's find out what, what her story is. And so I started talking to her and I found out she was actually flying to Atlanta to do a swimsuit shoot. This is how it starts. It starts out as, okay, well, we're going to bring you in. We're going to take some some pictures of you in your bathing suit next to a car and this, that, and the other thing for some sort of advertisement. But then, hey, well, what if we did this? And what if we did that? And hey, if we gave you a little bit more money or let's let's have a couple drinks or have some, some you know, have some drugs and, and try something else. And, and people get duped into this fraud, coercion, and force. And yes, absolutely. I, I think the numbers are shockingly and terribly high and it, it needs to stop, but we have to stop the demand. And the demand is within each one of us on some level. Even if you're just buying a dime store novel book, something that has graphic descriptions of, of you know, these, these sexual conquests with these guys in a loincloth and, and tearing some lady's dress on the cover. This is porn. This is pornography. I had a, a pastor friend, a retired pastor, challenge me. He said, well, how do you define pornography? I said, well, you know, I had to think about it because the old definition was you knew it when you saw it. Unfortunately, we don't know it when we see it anymore. So I would say that we should redefine pornography Anything that triggers you to sexual lust is pornographic, whether it's a book you're reading, a magazine you're looking at, a video you're watching, the music you're listening to, the way someone is talking to you or the way you're talking to somebody else. All of these things can be pornographic. It does not have to be an image. It does not have to be a video. We have to stop that demand in our hearts. We have to stop looking to fill ourselves up by taking from somebody else. And stop redefining things. Stop calling something like ethical porn, when there's no way that it can be. We, we've got to stop redefining it to, to make ourselves feel comfortable, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and actually, there's a there's a, a fantastic but disturbing TED Talk. A uh, lady talks about the so-called ethical porn and, and some of these issues. And the, the, the titles, the most popular titles and the things that people search for are absolutely shocking. It's, you know, whether or not that's actually what's being depicted or whether it's just this is a scene we're setting for you, it is very disturbing. But again, it's disturbing because this is somehow in some way it is relating back to a, an unresolved trauma uh, or unresolved um, issues in your past that you know, caused you to, to seek out certain things. It is common, but it's not normal. There are other ways to process this instead of just giving in and saying, oh, I'm going to look at this, that, or the other thing. I'm going to seek this stuff out. And, and as you pointed out, you, it's, you don't have to seek it out. It will find you. Um, and your phone and your TV, your TV is watching you. I, I don't think people realize this, but you know, George Orwell was right. He just didn't get the timeline quite right. You know, we're, we're well past 1984, but we have black screens hanging on our walls, listening to us, watching us. Uh, your TV has a camera. Your phone has a camera. My computer has a camera. My iPad has a camera. There are microphones and, and there are things going on where I, I will have a conversation with my wife about, I don't know, paper towels or something. Sure enough, the next time I'm on social media, I get an ad for paper towels. 
So if we are, again, sort of letting these sort of things come out of our mouths, uh, certain words, certain phrases, things like that, and then our phone is feeding us what we want. AI is behind all of that stuff. You could have an argument with your your spouse or your your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and it you know it may not even be specific to sex, but now Big Brother knows your relationship's a little rocky. Hey, remember this old girlfriend? You know, remember this thing that uh, you know maybe you haven't seen this before. You know, take a look at this. And unfortunately, it's meant to divide. It's meant to uh, undermine the the safety and security of our relationships and our families. It takes a lot of courage to come out to the world and say, this is where I was. These are the issues that I face. But you've gone beyond that and you've started up a, an opportunity for others who are caught in these addictions to actually make a change in their own lives. Tell me about that. This actually was born out of my my own recovery, and again, I'll give uh, Celebrate Recovery a little plug here because that was that those were the rooms that I started to uh, to get well in and, and continue to work with other uh, men and women toward getting better. And um, actually, the ministry is called Principle Eight, and it is based on the eighth principle of Celebrate Recovery, which mimics the twelfth step of uh, you know and any other A program, whether it's uh, you know Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous or Overeaters Anonymous or what have you, and that is to to share the message. I consider myself a hope dealer. For me, Jesus is the hope, but I want to make the introduction. I used to be a certain way. And now I'm not. And the difference for me was my higher power, the highest power that I can can think of, and that's that's Jesus Christ. So I want to share that message, but uh, a lot of people are skeptical of the church. They've been hurt by the church. They've been hurt by somebody in the church. You know, they think of religion versus relationship with God. And, uh, you know, maybe they grew up in a certain type of Christian church or or um, they just have certain baggage attached with the way someone treated them. So they won't necessarily come to a church. They won't necessarily come to a recovery meeting that's held in a church. I know when I was in in my active addiction, I thought, man, I'm going to walk through the, the threshold of that church and I'm going to burst into flames. God is going to smite me right there. I thought I had to get cleaned up. So I was good enough to present to God. And that's not the case. God says, come to me, I will get you cleaned up. I want to be able to take this message out to college campuses where we have hookup and date rape culture and wild promiscuity. I want to take this into jails where, you know, not everybody is there for a sexual offense, but there there certainly is a great deal of difficulty uh, behind bars and, and, and certainly um, people medicating their emotional pain, sexually speaking. I think we need to start talking about this in church. You know, some pastors are brave enough to actually bring these things up, but it's usually one Sunday a month uh, or maybe an occasional allusion to pornography or something like that. I'm actually really proud of my home church pastor because he does bring this up on a regular basis and we're very recovery friendly um, because I think recovery is God's plan. It's the same sort of thing. Look, you can't do this. I can. Turn it over. Let's work on this together and and get better. But I, I want to be able to take this message out to coffee houses, campgrounds, basically any place where I can gently ambush somebody with a message. And I do that through um, music. I write original recovery-based and, and faith-based songs. And somewhere in that language, maybe something's going to resonate with somebody and they, they may not even fully understand why, but it's an introduction to a conversation and a little explanation then after the fact 
um, might might help them, you know, want to seek out certain resources. And we're developing our own curriculum, but we also uh, recognize that there's a lot of great work that's already been done, and and we can refer people out to you know different organizations and different resources to help them on their journey. I'm sure there are some people who would feel that you're just another one of those Christians trying to tell others how to live. But in the meantime, I'm sure that there are so many people that you come into contact with who are saying, this is something that I need. I need this to break free from what is holding me back. As you said before, it started out as me wanting control and now this thing controls me. I want out. So there must be a number of people that you've met with that are just so thankful that you were there for them. Well, it is a blessing to to hear that um, somehow your story is is helping somebody else. Um, because I I have had people come up and say, you you told my story or at least a part of it. And we say in the rooms of recovery that if you you know come here long enough and you listen to enough testimonies, eventually you're going to hear your story or at least something very much like it. You know, there is that again. It may be not normal, but there is a commonality that exists. And, um, you know, just hearing that and knowing that you are not the only person who is struggling with this right now. You know, when we think about pornography, even in terms of whether it's a a gender specific problem, it's not. It is a male and female problem. Sometimes it manifests in different ways with men and women, but it is a, it is a human problem. And acknowledging our commonality, our common struggles, our common, you know, we, we suffer no temptation except that which is common to man, it says right in the scripture. And that is uh, the truth, that we, we do have these issues, we don't know how to solve them. But yes, talking to people and, and saying, man, I, you know, I really appreciate that you actually came out. And I mean, I, I started out by sharing a very, very detailed testimony in front of 150 strangers at a men's conference at my church. And I was terrified, but I was met with acceptance and gratitude. And it was a beautiful thing to be able to, to share these deep, dark secrets and not be kept by them anymore. It was like... Like nothing else, you know, it was just being accepted for who I was. And that's, that's what, that's what I was shown the love of God that way, you know, and I want to show the love of God to other people that way, regardless of, of what you've done, um, no matter how far down that, that spectrum you slid. And again, it's not about comparison. Everybody's rock bottom is going to be a little different, but boy, I would have loved to wake up call earlier. The alarm was going off. I just, I, I just kept hitting snooze. I wasn't listening. I know that you've come to that point where you can share what you've been through, but I'm sure that there are people listening right now who say, look, I'm not at that point. I need to reach out, but this needs to remain something private until I'm ready to share it. Is there hope for people like that? I wouldn't just encourage them to find one safe person that they can talk to. Um, And that can be difficult. You know, it might not be your pastor. It might not be, um, it's probably not your spouse or your partner right now, because again, they, they are on the receiving end of this and we have to be very sensitive that, that we have hurt other people, but there is, there is absolutely hope. There are lots of great programs. Many of them are, uh, geared toward anonymity. It is just a, a firm understanding and requirement when you walk through that door, the people you see, the things that you hear, they stay in that room. And so, you know, there, there are safe places, um, but even your most trusted friend might not be the best person because it might be your so-called drinking buddy that you always, you know, hung around with and got into trouble with. So you need to find someone who looks like they have what you've got and then 
spend some time with that person, you know, find out if they're, they're the real deal. Do they really walk the walk or are they just another, you know, person dressing up and, and shining up for Sunday? If people want to find out a little bit more about Principal 8 Ministries or to contact you, where's the best place to find you? Uh, start with our website. It's uh, www.principal8ministries.org. There are some resources there to help you get started on your recovery journey. Really, the, the vision for the ministry is to be able to go wherever God calls in whatever way God provides. So uh, it is a vision-driven mobile, global, multimedia ministry, and we exist to engage, encourage, equip, and empower people who are struggling with or affected by sexual addiction. That's the 15-second elevator speech for you right there. So, um, yeah, check out principal8ministries.org, and uh, you can find out more about what we do and how we do it. And I'll put links in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that you'll be able to, to find the details there. But Damon, it's been great talking to you. We've covered a lot of ground. I want to thank you for your openness, for your honesty in sharing about this issue. And I'm hoping that it's going to bring a lot of help and a lot of healing to some of our listeners today. Thank you for your time on Bleeding Daylight. Amen, Rodney. Thank, thank you so much. It's been a blessing. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.